You'll turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. We are going to read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 11. I've entitled this message, Behold a Throne. Revelation 4, 1 through 11, hear now the word of God. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne there were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. In the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as you've given us a glimpse of what is happening in the heavenly realm, that it would stir our hearts to worship, to recognize that in a very real, albeit spiritual sense, we have been invited to this service of worship. And we do pray, Father, that it would create in our hearts many wonderful and glorious things, not the least of which is to persevere and to seek to overcome, knowing in whose hand history lies We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may remember a debate I had with a uh, well-known and very pleasant, by the way, atheist, whose name is Michael Shermer. In my research for this debate, I found a number of the books that he wrote. One of the books was called The Moral Ark. In that book, what he did was argue that morality through the ages, has been in a consistent state of ascension. Unlike the way a lot of Christians think, he was arguing, no, things are getting better. He gave a a list of things in terms of research that he'd done to kind of verify and authenticate this point. There are fewer despotic dictatorships in the world today than ever before. There is greater freedom to purchase property and goods than ever before. Rights to life and liberty and marriage and voting and speech are higher per capita now than ever before in history. 
There's greater wealth, affluence, and less poverty per capita than any time in history. People are living longer and healthier lives than ever before. Slavery is virtually outlawed throughout the entire world. A smaller percentage of people die in war today than ever in human history. Homicide rates are the lowest in human history. And judicial equality and civility are higher than ever before. And the list goes on and on. Let me tell you, I think any person with the remotest understanding or grasp of human history knows that we are currently living in, let's put it this way, the best 500-year chunk of history there has ever been. Shermer goes on, though, to credit this moral amelioration to things like the scientific revolution, the age of reason, and the Enlightenment. In other words, things got better when we got rid of religion, is kind of his argument. Now, many times in our debate, he would point out some cultural phenomenon. He would like point to, and usually it was the rise of atheism. And then, if you recall, he would follow that with the words, and this is a good thing. He liked to say that, and this is a good thing. Well, since he identifies himself as a former Christian, he might be offering a not-so-subtle claim of self-deification. In other words, um, assigning godhood to himself. You see, because the declaration of goodness is the refrain that belongs to God in the creation account, right? Every day, God would say, and this is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. Well, maybe it's unwitting that he would say it that way, but I think maybe, just maybe, he didn't realize that when the godness of the true God is removed, another God must fill the gap. There's always going to be some God calling the shots. Now, I want to just say here, I'm not anti-reason. I'm not anti-enlightenment, at least in a certain sense, whatever you might mean by that. And I'm certainly not anti-science. Scientific achievements aided physicians in the saving of my life more than once. And I'm guessing this room, if I were to ask, raise your hand, if science and doctors saved your life, there might be a number of you who would raise your hand. But science could not tell the physicians that the saving of my life was actually a good thing. They could save my life, but the idea of declaring it good is something else altogether. The scientist of scientists, Albert Einstein, I think, said it well. Einstein said, you are right in speaking of the moral foundation of science. But you cannot turn around and speak of the scientific foundation of morality. You get the difference there. There should be morals in science. But you can't use science to determine morality. Einstein went on to say, every attempt to reduce ethics to a scientific formula must fail. Well, for two chapters, we've seen Christ calling upon churches of various levels of faithfulness to persevere and to overcome, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. We now move into the final portion of the outline 
provided for us by John himself, the things that are to take place after this. We are now in Roman numeral three, the final Roman numeral, even though we're only in chapter four. All right? The things that you have seen, the things that are, and the things which will take place after these things, we are now entering that section of the Revelation. And keep in mind, things were hot in a bad way in Asia Minor where this letter was going. And they were going to get worse. This is the anticipation. Things are hot. Things are bad. Oppression, persecution is there. And it's going to get worse. But what they will begin to see now, what is the force, I would argue, of the theme of Revelation is, as we've said before, the triumph of Christ over all opposition, or the triumph of Christianity over all evil. In the true and final analysis, what they're what they're going to be shown in these visions is that history is not in the hands of kings, presidents, oil cartels, economists, philosophers, scientists, QAnon, our biological, our chemical forces in terms of just kind of the natural progression of evolution, or whatever you want to call it. History is not in the hands of those things. At best, those are secondary causes. There is a primary cause. Behold a throne. In Laodicea, we ask the question, who will we believe? I would argue here we move into that second question, who is in charge here? We learn what is right in a very authoritative and objective sense. What is right, why it's right, and why it will prevail. The events and directions of history as it leads into eternity is in divine hands. That's what we're going to see clearly in chapter 4. Perhaps you have this sneaking suspicion within you that good will win out. I think we all kind of feel that way. We kind of feel like, in the final analysis, evil will be deposed. Good will win out. There's good reason for that feeling. And we're going to see that as we move into chapter 4. Those churches, all churches, all Christians traveling the rough roads of earthly trials. And whether or not that's you right now, whether it was you in the past, at some point it's going to be all of us in the future, we must travel this road with an eye on heaven. You know, there's an old saying, you know, that people can be so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly good, And I get that if you're just somebody kind of walking around ignoring the world and what have you. But I would say in a true sense, that's a false statement. If you are truly heavenly minded, you will be all earthly good that you could possibly be. And we are called here as we move into chapter 4 to be heavenly minded. Clark 
offers the goal of chapter 4. David Clark, who's, a, who's written a short commentary on this, that at least for me was very ministerial in terms of why John moves in this direction. Clark writes, The immediate purpose, and that is of writing chapters 4 and on, is to meet the moral needs of God's persecuted people, not to amuse them with splendid pictures, not to sketch a scheme of world events, as, as is so popular today, right? Prophecy conferences that are just there to fascinate us and what have you. But to lift their hearts and thoughts above the deadly decrees of tyrants and their souls above the fear of prison, sword, and stake. In other words, when Jesus says, persevere, overcome, and they're kind of thinking, well, wait a minute. He stops now and goes, let me show you who's really in charge as I'm giving you your marching orders. Verses 1 and 2. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now, just for the sake of being informed, you all need to know that the current most popular, dominant view of the Revelation, the view that most of your Christian friends, at least today, will have, separates chapter 3 from chapter 4 by 2,000 years and counting. I have to say, I think it is a terribly unnatural way to read your Bible. I don't think on your own, if you sat down and read your Bible, and you finished chapter 3 and moved into chapter 4, right away you'd be going, this is thousands of years later. This view also submits the popular view today, and I can only get so far into this, that the entire church is absent for the remainder of the revelation, having been raptured. In other words, the popular view is, at this point, the church is raptured and at best watching the events take place upon the earth. Even though in this verse, it is John, and only John, who's beckoned to come up here. It's only John, if we can use the term, who is raptured, not the entire church. Not only that, that view, in my opinion, <clears throat> would extract any application of what we're reading from the churches receiving the letter, which I think is really important when you read your Bibles, is how would the people receiving this letter understand it? And if we take that view that the church is now gone, it doesn't apply to those churches anymore at all. And I'm going to argue that, no, the direct and immediate application of what we're about to read is to those seven churches, and then to any church throughout the course of history that finds themselves in a similar situation, which, by the way, is the way we read the entire New Testament. We recognize that Corinthians was written to who? The Corinthians, right? But we read it and we recognize there's an application to us if we find ourselves in that similar situation. No, I would argue that it is much more natural, it is much more ministerial, applicable, and God-honoring to view chapter 4 
as following Christ's call to faithfulness that he has issued in the previous two chapters. And for two chapters, he's been saying, persevere, overcome, persevere, overcome. And now he's going, let me show you something. This would apply directly to them. And then if we find ourselves in a similar situation, as we've pointed out in going through those seven letters to those seven churches, to any other church throughout the course of history, in our times of joy, in our times of sorrow, grief, pain, elation, deflation, the Christian should ever live his life, her life, under the words, behold, a throne. 62 times in the New Testament, the word throne is used. 47 of those is in the Revelation. And 17 of those are in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. There is to be no ambivalence. There is to be no unsurety, uncertainty in the minds of Christians regarding who determines the course of history. Are you confident in terms of who determines the course of history? Are you willing, even in your times of sorrow, to recognize that in the final analysis, God has determined every last single thing, even your darkest moment, And not only that, in eternity, we will praise God for every moment of history that He has ordained, even the most difficult day of our lives. We will praise Him for that. John is seeing and recording, and these are very strong words, that which must take place. The things which must take place. In the Greek, that word for must, it is a strong word. It means necessary. This is what is going to happen. It is not random. You know, there's a lot of uh, questions. You'll, you'll hear a lot of questions. You're like, what is Reformed theology is a big question out there. How, what are the things that kind of define people who say, well, I'm Reformed? I would say on the short list has to be an emphasis upon the sovereignty of God over all events. It's other things, but it definitely contains that. That there's nothing that is left to its own devices. That God is the first cause of all things. We read in Isaiah 14, 24, and then I'll just move to 27. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. And as, as I have purposed, so it shall stand. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Verse 3, and he who sat there, we're talking about on the throne, the one on the throne. He who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Well, we have to recognize that God is incomprehensible. The revelation is not giving us you know, images or false images of God. So we see metaphors are used. Now, the depths of study here really goes beyond what our time allows. So I'm just going to kind of do a kind of a broad 
uh, paint stroke here for us to get at least the, the idea of what's taking place. The jasper and the sardius stones were the last and first stones of the high priest's breastplate. And many of you will know that this idea of a rainbow speaks of the covenant of peace given to Noah. So, I mean, there's a lot more that could be said. There are a lot more ideas. But at very least, it includes that. This idea that this vision that John is having includes stones that were included. And and John, being a Jew, would get this on the breastplate of the priest. And John would have understood, at some level, the covenant given to Noah, that God would no longer judge the world the way he had during the time of Noah. So I think it's worth noting that prior to the prophecies of great judgment, which we're going to see, I mean, those are going to come, we are given a vision designed to instill the advocacy of our high priest and the loving patience that God has conveyed through his mercy in light of the rainbow. So it's almost as if before we get to all of this, John, who would have been a knowledgeable Jew, looks at this and goes, my advocate, and the one that even in the midst of all this turmoil has determined that there would be a covenant of peace. No wonder when Paul had a similar vision, it seemed so natural for him to say, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Anybody who God would have shown this type of thing to would have recognized that this is where my ultimate peace is. This is where I really belong. It also has to be noted, I think, here that it is reprehensible to use a symbol which God has designed for his own glory and the peace of the souls of his people as a symbol for that which is antithetical to his very character, which we see with the rainbow today. It's just the opposite. So one other thing I want to point out here, just for those of you who are students and you want to go, because I, I don't want you to take my word for anything, and I want, to, I want you to arrive at these conclusions because you see it in the text. So there's one other thing I want to point out here. We begin to see this kind of repetitious, I heard, then I turned and look. I heard and I turned and look that goes throughout the course of the Revelation, where John will hear something, and then he'll turn and he'll look, and he'll see something that is in reference to what he just heard, but it's a little different than what he just heard. But it helps to grasp the full force of what he just heard. So just put that in the back of your mind, because it'll become a big player later on. Now, the scene moves from the one who was on the throne... Right? So behold, one on the throne. Now it moves to the host of heaven. Now it moves to this holy entourage. Chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, along with Isaiah 6, by the way, just for the sake of your study, were very um, dominant in terms of the liturgies established in in the synagogues and in the early churches. So the order of worship, We see when we look at Isaiah chapter 6, when we look at Revelation 4 and 5, in terms of when we get together, what should we do? 
the church historically has leaned very heavily upon these chapters because these chapters reveal to us a worship service. So churches should look at these things and go, what's happening here? And how can we incorporate these things into our worship as well? Verse 4. Oh, before I get to verse 4, I just want to ask this question. How do unfallen creatures, because that's what we're looking at here. We see either unfallen or, depending on your view, redeemed creatures. How do they respond to the one who sits on on the throne? Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Well, you know, I've committed myself to not get too deep into the weeds on all this stuff. There are a lot of positions on who these 24 elders are. Some think they represent the Old and New Testaments, you know, 12 the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. I think there's good arguments for that. Others believe they're a very high rank of angel. I think there's some merit to that argument. Others think they're stars. Not really buying that as much. Some say Old Testament saints. Some say books. There were 24 categories in the priestly order. So it could be a reference to the Old Testament priestly order. Well, you know, we don't have time to dig into that. It's not a seminary class. Suffice it to say for now, we are given a glimpse into an awe-inspiring event. And it should change the way we all view worship. It's one thing, you know, so we're, we're seeing this event. It's one thing for a sinful creature to admire or respect another sinful creature. We, we all do that at some level. I mean, I, when I used to watch basketball, I admired Michael Jordan. Like, that guy can really play. You know? I'm a sinner, he's a sinner. A better basketball player than I am, a little bit better. It was appropriate for me to admire that talent. But usually the admiration of peers means a little more, right? When the other basketball players kind of looked at Michael Jordan and said, that guy's good, that kind of gets our attention. Or when a group of musicians go, that guy is the musician. It's usually Bob Dylan, right? All the musicians get together and are like, it's Bob Dylan, he's the guy, you know. You see, the opinion of experts, of course, that word doesn't mean anything anymore, upon the higher expert, should be cause for reflection, right? You're like going, how do the geniuses look at that person? I know for me, I'm a, you know, I, those of you who know me know I'm a terrible flyer, any turbulence. I'm already white-knuckling, you know, and any turbulence, I'm like, you know, I don't look at the other people. You know who I look at when there's turbulence? The flight attendants. Because if they start looking at each other, okay, I'm going to freak out. They're probably taught to be all cool, you know. But I want to know, what do the people who fly all the time think about this level of of turbulence? Here we see, what we're looking at here are powerful, unfallen, or depending upon your position, 
redeemed creatures. They are, at least according to Hebrews 2, for now, superior to us. What is happening here? What are they doing? When, when, we, when we're invited into that, that worship service, what do we see them doing? Well, verses 5 through 8. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is, and is to come. This is what's going on. This is the response of unfallen or sinless or redeemed creatures to that event. You know, I mean, and I I have to say, you know, I don't want to get, I got to just be careful what I'm saying here. Because as I'm going to point out in just a second, in a very real, albeit spiritual sense, this is what we're invited to when we gather as a church. According to Hebrews chapter 12, we have come to this. I don't think anybody there, the living creatures, the elders, I don't think any of them walk in with a Starbucks in their hand. That's why I have to be careful, because I'm just (laughs) guessing. If you have that today, I'm going to give you a break. But you get the idea here that this call to worship, when God says, lift up your hands, lift up your hearts and come to me, that we are being invited to something that is spectacular. And yet, it's sometimes been reduced to a lecture, reduced to a concert. We need to recognize what we've been called to. And we see that a little bit here in the very beginning because what we have to see in these verses is that we are not given in this vision some reduced version of God. It's not this kind of uh, Marcionite, New Testament God who's the new and improved, nicer God than the Old Covenant, Old Testament God. Lightnings, thunderings. Voices. What are those reminiscent of? They are reminiscent of Sinai. They are reminiscent of the mountain, the law. We see the full force of God's holiness. And in the, in the case where we're first introduced to this in the Old Testament, all of the people in the camp trembled. In a certain sense, we should walk into the room trembling. And when whoever the elder is declares your sins are pardoned, there should be this collective exhale. It's not casual. The sea of glass, it may speak to God's separateness. It may speak to his calming power. 
over that which is normally turbulent. Some people think it speaks to the Red Sea and all of that deliverance. We also see the most powerful of living creatures who are closest to the throne. And we're told that they are full of eyes in front and in back, which I think reveals their vast knowledge as God's agents. It's almost as if they know, I wouldn't say they're omniscient, I wouldn't say they know everything God knows, but it's this idea that God has given them the ability to know. The lion, the calf, the man, and the eagle, right? That's what they're described as. And Calvin, because Calvin didn't write a commentary on Revelation, but at Ezekiel, he kind of said, well, this is just all of creation, and I think there's a certain validity to that. We see in these four creatures strength, work, intelligence, and majesty. The rabbis interpreted this as, you know, the lion, the king of the wild beasts, the ox, the king of the domestic beasts, the eagle, the king of all birds, and then man, the king of all creatures, the one God has called to take dominion over all. These creatures also seem to be, just for those of you who are interested in this, a combination of cherubim and seraphim in terms of their attributes. But they operate in a continual state of worship. Day and night they are worshiping, extolling God with the only attribute ever in the Scripture that is given to God in threefold repetition. Holy, holy, holy. What do unfallen creatures say of God in the presence of God? They don't say, I mean, as much as we talk about God as love, they don't say love, love, love. They don't say righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. It is holy, holy, holy. God, in that sense, is completely other in that sense from all things, even that which is sinless. They recognize that they're not as it were, part of God. God is somehow distinct. There is this eternal creator-creature distinction that ever must be there. Even when we go to heaven, we will still be creatures. We will never be omniscient. We will never be omnipresent. We're never going to be God. We will always be the creature. And I would argue, and I've said this before, but I think it's a glorious thought, that through all eternity, because God is infinite and eternal, every day we'll wake up with an increased understanding of who He is, which will be eternally glorious. We'll never get to that point where we'll say, I get it. I get it. What's next? As we wind this down, let us not lose sight of the context of this vision. The church, for two chapters, has been called to perseverance. The church has been called to faithfulness. The church has been called to victory, to to overcome. They had to be wondering, they're just people. And as we examine these churches, we, we saw that... Most of those churches we probably wouldn't want to be members of. They were just people, and they had to be wondering, 
whether or not it was worth it. Is it worth it for me to actually put my life on the line to be faithful? Jesus had charged them, be faithful unto death. Really? Faithful unto death. Friends, there's a direction that history is taking as it folds into eternity. And it is in the sovereign hands of the living God Almighty. Now, some might ask why, and I'm constantly aware of all the positions of the revelation. Some people will be like, well, wait a minute, Pastor Paul. I'm going to try to anticipate your Q&A question. Why, why are you talking about history? Well, you, this seems to be all what's going on in heaven. Now you, you bring it in to history. Because we need to understand that what we're reading in Revelation, though it's a heavenly perspective, is very concerned with what's happening on earth. It's not just kind of us looking up there and going, wow, that's amazing stuff. What we'll see as we read through the Revelation is that all of these things are going to, in some one way or another, extend themselves into history. Not merely eternity. First and foremost, eternity? Yes. But history as well. Remember at the onset, at the very beginning of the Revelation, we are told that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the what? Of the earth. We, 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 we can't be viewing this as some entirely immaterial, spiritual concept. I think that's a mistake. In the same way, if you met somebody and they say, yes, I'm very spiritual, I'm a Christian, I believe all the right things, but as you observe their actual life, nothing seems to have any shoe leather to their convictions. Jesus says for us to put that kind of person out of the church. Whatever is going on in an immaterial sense must have some manifestation in a material sense. Jesus didn't die on a cross in heaven. He died on a cross on earth. He had a physical body. He had a real life. So we must, we must not over-spiritualize all of this. We need to recognize that everything that is happening spiritually is designed for us to recognize at least in part of what's going to happen materially throughout the course of history. Lest we become Gnostic or Docetistic in our thinking, and you can ask me that, about that during Q&A. But, but let's know this. We can't miss this. That this entire enterprise begins with a vision of a celestial worship service. It's almost like you've been commissioned, you've been commissioned by Jesus, and then the first thing in terms of the things that will take place after this is let me show you not only who's in charge, but what's happening there. It's a worship service. And it is a service, like I said, that we've been called to. It's it's part of what happens when the people of God gather together in a very sanctified sense 
John continues, verses 9 through 11. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. It's almost as if, you know, Jesus is seeking to instill a sense of um, courage. It's, these are, fearful times are coming. But if we want to live a life lacking fear, like a bad kind of fear, we need to live a life giving glory and honor and thanks to God. Like I heard of a tombstone one time, and it said something along the lines of, you know, here lies, you know, John Jones. He feared man so little because he feared God so much. It's kind of like, look, I know who's really in charge. And it's not just a matter of knowing, but I'm going to engage in that time of worship of the one who is in charge. That I might be weaved into every aspect of my soul the faithfulness of knowing who sits upon the throne of history and what he has done for me. we got to feed that in ourselves. We don't feed it, it starves. It needs to be fed. This is what Jesus is doing as we read the Revelation. You've been given your marching orders. Now let me begin to feed you by exposing you to this celestial, heavenly worship service. And I'm going to feed you here and strengthen you here. And you'll walk away from here different than you've ever been. As was the case with Isaiah and Ezekiel and Paul and those who've had this experience. It should be the case with us. We see that the elders fall down. And again, I'm not going to speculate too much on what I think or who I think they are. We're seeing this, right? They fall down and they throw their crowns down. And even there's debate about what the crowns represent. So I'll just give you the full vocabulary of what the things are. And we can add it because I think it's every one of them. I don't think it's every one of them. I think it can apply to every one of them. And that is that they throw their crowns down because they know that whatever victory, glory, reward, or authority that they have, it is derivative. It's from God. It didn't, it didn't originate with them. They were a vehicle. They recognized from whence anything good within them came. And in his presence, they cast it down before him. And we should do the same. The focus of the worship, at least in chapter 4, is on God the creator and sustainer of all things. In all things and in all things, things consist. Chapter 5, it's going to turn. Next time it'll be on, the focus will be not on creator, but on redeemer. But for now, we need to pause and recognize that Jesus is seeking 
to spur his church on to faithfulness by giving them, by giving us a vision of who is control, in control, not only of eternity, but of history as well. I recently heard a well-known pastor, maybe the most well-known pastor in California, maybe the most well-known pastor in America, and it was not Joel Osteen, so I know you It was somebody who I actually really enjoy, and I, somebody, somebody that I have found very edifying. I think a good teacher. But he emphatically stated, because I would, as much as I enjoy him, I think um, his, his study of end times, his eschatology, I just think it's off. I just think it's wrong. And in a sermon, he said it this way, looking at his congregation of thousands and thousands of people, he said, what you need to understand is, we don't win down here. We lose. He actually said this. He goes, you're a post-millennialist? I was kind of surprised he even knew the term. You thought we were going to waltz into the kingdom as we took over the world? Well, let me tell you, he's got a fundamentally flawed understanding of post-millennialism if he thinks we're waltzing into... Then he said, they killed Jesus, they killed all the apostles, we're all going to be persecuted. Now, again, I think not only is that a flawed understanding of post-millennialism, he said all of this from his multi-million dollar facility full of members who are well-fed, well-clothed, driving their nice cars to their beautiful homes. I'm thinking... Do you think Nero would have allowed you to have the radio station you have? You think Caligula would have let you have this gigantic church with all these people? Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus said, be faithful unto death. I mean, I understand. We need to understand whatever, whatever you think. And this, this idea of postmillennialism, in a nutshell, is the idea that as a result of the cross, the world is going to become a better place. It's as simple as that. I mean, it gets more detailed, but it's as simple as that. But it doesn't mean that it's going to become a better place without a price paid. Like I said, this pastor, he's ministered to me. He's ministered to a lot of people. I think the world is a better place that he's in it and that his ministry is in it. But what he doesn't seem to understand is that his success in ministry, in part, is due to the blood of the martyrs who went before him. And he has had a historical, not just immaterial, spiritual, eternal, but an, a historical benefit of the faithful who went before him. And we need to recognize that, that, that the kingdom of God is on the earth. It's not of the earth, but it's on the earth. And it continues to grow. And it's observable. The fruit of it is observable. You can see it. Then he compared postmillennialism to the prosperity gospel. Now I'm going to have to make a phone call. <laughs> he won't take it. You see, that, I have to say, is just the opposite of the message Christ is giving to these seven churches. There's nothing in the Revelation where Jesus is looking at his people and say, by the way, we lose. That's just not in there. 
It is true that they may die in their faithfulness, but their blood will be and has been the seed of the church. I do think that this pastor's great success as a pastor, and I do think it's been success, is due in part to the sacrificial saints that went before him. Even my atheist friend, Shermer, knows that good will win out in history. He credits it to science and nature. Revelation 4 gives all glory to God. It is in this light that we are called to persevere and to overcome. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would recognize your divine hand in every last single event throughout the course of history. We do pray, Father, that we would work and pray toward the advancement of your kingdom and that it would, Father, start with the gospel and hearts being turned from stone to flesh, that it would start, Father, with that message preached and you opening eyes and ears to see and hear and believe. We do pray also that from there it would extend to the whole man, the whole woman, and then to the remotest ends of the earth. We pray for our church and we pray for churches throughout the world that we would be faithful to this task. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.